0: Well good morning. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. indeed. Open your Bibles to John chapter 19. We gather on this Sunday morning and really every Sunday morning uh, because we believe a dead man walked out of a sealed and guarded tomb on a Sunday morning a little over 2,000 years ago. That's what That's what we've been singing, that's who we've been worshiping and praising, and we believe that not because it's simply one of the world religions we have chosen to adhere to, but we believe that because of the proof, objective, verifiable proof that we find in God's Word. See, there is only one man in history who predicted where he would die, how he would die, and that he would rise again exactly three days later. Later. That's why we've gathered. But why does that even matter? Why does that matter? Here's why. It matters because Jesus claimed to be the son of God, not just a son of a God or or one of many sons of one of the many gods, but he is the one true son singular of God singular, and that matters. Secondly, it matters because Jesus said he could forgive sin. Isn't that a hopeful message this morning, even for believers who need the gospel today, right now? Jesus is the only one who said he could forgive sin. How will he prove that that is true? Okay, the resurrection. Third, it matters because Jesus predicted not only that he would die, but when it would happen. Exactly three days later. So, what's most important this morning is not candy, certainly not peeps, a little sandpaper sweetness. Um, it's not new clothes, it's not even our family dinner today. Um, you know, eternity doesn't hinge on those things. What matters today is whether Jesus Christ truly rose from the dead or not. Matter of fact, leading philosophers and theologians will all say if he didn't, Rise from the dead, then no other question matters. We are of all people to be most pitied, is what Lloyd read out of 1 Corinthians 15. But I love what it says later. But Christ is risen from the dead. Therefore, our preaching is not in vain, and we are not to be the most pitied, and that we are not to be the ones that are following this delusion. It's interesting that at the crucifixion of Jesus, the disciples scattered. Jesus told them. They would do this. Remember, Peter resisted this, but at the crucifixion, they scattered. This is what, this is what Jesus said on the way to the Mount of Olives, uh, j- shortly before he was betrayed. In Matthew 26, verse 30, it says, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered Listen to what he says in verse 32. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And the disciples did scatter. They fell away. They abandoned the man they had chosen to trust. Can you relate with any of their possible emotions? Disillusionment? Disillusionment is a feeling of disappointment resulting from the discovery that something is not as good as you believed it to be. The disciples were disillusioned. They were lonely, a key companion of theirs. Their teacher had been removed. What about confusion? It just doesn't make sense. It wasn't supposed to go down like that. Everything is just so uncertain now. Or fear. Fear is a mindset coupled with emotions caused by the belief that something, a situation like the death of the one you believe to be the prince of life... Or someone like the Jewish mob or mighty Rome is dangerous and likely to cause pain. And you'll see that because they have locked themselves repeatedly in the upper room for fear of the Jews. Disappointment. Sadness or displeasure caused by the non-fulfillment of one's hopes or expectations. People have let you down. In this case, the disciples believed Jesus let them down. Or hopelessness. You're discouraged and depressed, emotionally numb. You're the kind of tired that sleep can't cure. You don't care, and you're having a difficult time seeing the way forward. Jesus said this would happen to the disciples, that you will all fall away from me this night on account of me. This is where the disciples found themselves, arrested by fear and uncertainty, hurt, disappointed, let down by their shepherd. A matter of fact, a shepherd who just previously told them he would not leave them as orphans. And there they are, scrambling through the city of Jerusalem, orphaned. John 19, where I've asked you to turn, ends with Jesus being buried in a tomb. Look at verse 42. I'm just going to read part of it. It says, Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. He really did die. It seemed irreversible. It seemed wrong. And that is the nature of death. Irreversible and lonely and confusing. See, don't miss, don't miss an important fact of what these disciples are thinking as they're scattering and falling away. God's Messiah champion, the rescuer of the world, was executed. The Prince of Life hung on a Roman cross lifeless scripture says he breathed his last the bread of life was discarded in the streets among the dead it didn't make sense the man the disciples had placed their entire hope and confidence in was dead the man they had left everything to follow now left them John 14:18, he says, "I will not leave you as orphans, but there they stand, orphaned and alone." I mean, can you, can you relate with the disciples at all? Does Peter go back to fishing? Does, Mas- does, Ma- does Matthew seek his, his job back as a tax collector? Should they just go hide in the upper room, knowing that the authorities have their names and that they're going to come find them next? If the Gospel of John were an ordinary biography, there would be no chapter 20. But it's not an ordinary biography. I've read the two-volume, it's a colossal work, about missionary Hudson Taylor. The first volume is the growth of a soul. The second volume is the growth of a work of God. And that biography ends with his death. I've read a biography of C.S. Lewis that ended with his death. I've read the fascinating account of Adoniram Judson, the first American missionary sent to a foreign country, uh, it's, it's written by Courtney Anderson called To the Golden Shore, why one of my son's middle names is Judson, but that account ended with Adoniram Judson's death. I've read Undaunted Courage about Meriwether Lewis and, and Thomas Jefferson, and the second to last records, this is the title, The Last Voyage of Lewis. It's about his death. And yes, Thomas Jefferson died too, but this is not how John's account ends. Look at, look at chapter 20. They put him in a tomb. The disciples aren't even remembering the predictive prophecies that Jesus spoke about where he would die and how he would die, but after three days he would rise again. It's like that's not even going through their minds, even though scripture says that Jesus taught it plainly to them. Here is the hopeful hinge on which the entire gospel account now turns. Look at John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, okay, this is the Mary from whom he had expelled seven demons. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, indicating clearly somebody had been there. Verse 2, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Of course, that's John referencing himself. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Do you know it's Mary who loved her Lord that suggests the first false view of the resurrection? She still is failing to believe the impossible and really just kind of defaults back to what is possible, and that is that they stole the body. Look at verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Don't John's details crack you up? Right? The disciple whom Jesus loved. I mean, I don't know that I would refer to myself that way over like all the other men in the church right? Or the disciple who ran faster. There's just these like human marks of this account. Well, anyway, he gets there first, but look at verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And such is the nature and character of Peter. Look at verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he just goes right into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, verse 7, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, don't overlook the details. The tomb is empty, but it's not completely empty. There is evidence on the scene. There is evidence that the body was not stolen. Did you see the clues when you read that? Did you note the evidence? Look at verse 8. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first... Okay, that's John, also went in, and listen to what it says, and he saw and believed. Okay, saw what? What caused this man who had already believed in Jesus to be the Messiah? It's not, it's not a matter of salvific belief here, but he believed something to be true about Jesus when he went in and saw the evidence. He saw the linen cloths and the face cloth, which would have been a small cloth wrapped under the chin after somebody dies to keep the mouth from popping open. When John says that the face cloth was folded up, it is likely in an oval loop sitting there where Jesus would have passed through it. The items are lying there, implying that he was not unwrapped and it doesn't give any evidence that there was a hurried Capturing of the body, in which case you would keep the body wrapped anyway. All these, all these details matter because when we talk about belief, when we, talk, when we read in First Corinthians 15 where it says, you know, if, if Christ is not risen, our faith is empty. Everyone in the world has faith. Atheists have faith. It's just that what they're believing is not going to carry them into eternity safely. We have faith in a risen Christ, but if he's not risen, our faith is in vain too. Don't miss the details. The scene in the tomb does not support a Roman conspiracy. You would either think the clothes would be strewn about the floor Or heaped up in a pile, or just not there. Look at verse 8 of John 20. Again, then the other disciple went in and he saw and believed. For as yet, or up to this point, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. That's what he believed. Oh, that's what he said. On numerous occasions, he predicted his own death and the exact timing of his bodily resurrection. You know, there are at least 90 explicit references to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead scattered throughout every book of your New Testament. 90 explicit references. On seven, sep- on seven separate occasions, Jesus foretold his own resurrection. And five out of those seven, he not only specified the fact of his coming resurrection, but also the precise timing. Let me read one of those five. Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. The disciples forgot about that teaching in their grief and in their disillusionment and in their confusion and in their frustration and fear. Now, See, now John goes in, and he sees the linen cloth, as the, and he sees the unwrapped cloths as though Jesus' body passed right through them, as he would later when they're locked in the upper room, and he simply passes through a wall. Now John sees it, and he goes, that's right. That's what he was teaching us. That's what he believed. This is progressive revelation. We look back on a finished work of Christ and a finished bodily resurrection. It's happening right before their eyes. And John sees that proof and he believes. Jesus' death and resurrection cannot be explained away. It's almost as if it's God's exclamation point. And Jesus repeatedly made his spiritual claims testable in tangible ways, objective ways, verifiable ways, For example, when he healed the paralytic in Matthew chapter 9, remember his friends lowered him down, it's a very clear scene, Uh, they lower him down and there's Jesus teaching and he stops and he uses this man to to provide, if you would, objective, verifiable proof. Matter of fact, he says this to the unbelieving people watching, those that would be sort of dialoguing with him and resisting his claims, he looks at the man and he first says this, your sins are forgiven. Of course, people grumble. Who is this that says he can forgive sin? Only God can do that. Exactly. That's exactly what your mind should be thinking at that moment. And then he says, for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Objective proof. What's easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say take up your bed and go home? Or, Or is it easier for me to say, I can can bench 500 pounds? Is it easier to say that, or is it easier for me to do that? And of course, you're looking at me thinking, it's probably easier for you to do that, right? No, no. The most I ever got was 315, and my sons are already way beyond me. It's easier to say, it's easier to make a claim without having to provide proof. Is that clear? But he says, but that you may know objective, verifiable, testable proof, but you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He just proved that He can forgive sin. And the reaction of the crowd says it all. In verse 8 it says, When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And in this most incredulous claim, Jesus is going to attach it to verifiable proof. The resurrection narrative continues in John chapter 20, verse 11. Look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mark and Luke add this detail. In Mark chapter 16, verse 9, Luke has his own account. It says, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Now, if you're trying to build an airtight case with trustworthy witnesses, you're probably not going to choose who. In this culture, in this society, a woman who was already looked down on because of her gender now also has a checkered past. This isn't the exact kind of first witness you would choose, but this choice makes a strong case for grace. She receives the first eyewitness appearance. She must have been wondering, are my sins forgiven? She is looking for her Lord. Having said this, verse 14 She turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Mary simply wants to give Jesus a proper burial. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, I love this, Mary She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And I love Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Maybe you're confused or disillusioned this morning, and you're not sure what happened. You believe, but there's also this skepticism, this doubt. Wouldn't it be great to all of a sudden have your name be called out by our Lord and doesn't he do that at times? I mean, I could go and choose names from each section here this morning and just start calling out your name. And if Jesus were to do that, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. Listen to the Listen to the plural. To my God and your God, personal terms, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. This is interesting. John and Peter get to see the linen cloths and the head strap, but Mary gets to see who? Jesus, personally. Look at verse 19, because now Jesus does appear to the disciples On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Okay, not for fear of the secular Romans, for fear of the religious Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, and I love his words, peace be with you. And isn't that what we want from the prince of life, from the prince of peace? According to Isaiah 9, verse 6, peace be with you. They're fearful. They're locked in a room. Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Of course, he didn't leave them as orphans. Now he's with them. And just as he promised, he's going to send another comforter to them. And he actually gives the Holy Spirit to them in a very personal way. In verse 22, it says, And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. They're not orphaned. I love the next section. Look at verse 24. Because there was a disciple who wasn't in the room. There was a disciple who didn't get to see Jesus show them his hands and it says in verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the Twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Wouldn't you feel left out, overlooked? So the other disciples told him, "We have seen the Lord." How do you think that resonated in Thomas's heart? I know how it would. I know how I would, I'd be like, "Oh, good for you, right? Why couldn't he have shown up when we were all together, right? I was just in the room with you earlier." And you can tell this by his next phrase, but he said to them, I mean, they're, they're, we have seen the Lord. He said, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Spoken by a believer, by the way. Thomas wanted physical evidence. Look at verse 26. This is a long time to wait when everybody else has seen the Lord and you're hearing these incredible stories. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They're still behind locked doors. He passes through. Look at verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, he he looks directly at Thomas, and he says this, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. It's interesting. Jesus knew exactly what Thomas said to the other disciples. And I find it incredibly encouraging that he displayed sympathy towards Thomas' skepticism as a disciple. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, and by the way, this is the, the right appropriate response of belief when you're doubting. He said, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's most of us. We've never seen him physically. And you can go on and on about maybe all your dreams that where you've seen him, but you haven't seen him, not like this The confession, my Lord and my God, is remarkable. It is a confession that He is the Son of God. He is the divine Son of God. And and it is the appropriate response to Jesus. This is what Paul says in Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, here's the promise, you will be saved. Do you believe that? Do you believe Him Several implications of the resurrection become clear from this narrative in John First, and the most obvious to the reader is that there is objective proof for Christ's resurrection. Predictive prophecy fulfilled, seven separate occasions where Jesus foretold his own resurrection, five of those where he foretold it exactly and the timing of it. The tomb is empty. That's the second proof. Predictive prophecy, the tomb is empty, but it's not completely empty. There's evidence there. And fourth, there are multiple eyewitnesses from different backgrounds and different experiences and and, and across the course of 40 days. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Remember, it's Luke who wrote the gospel according to Luke and also the book of Acts. He was a medical doctor. Listen to what he says in Acts 1, verse 3. He, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Many proofs is a technical term in medicine for demonstrative evidence. That is physical evidence that demonstrates conclusively a diagnosis. They're all words of a trained physician. And what Luke is saying is that during those 40 years, Jesus put forward many proofs, conclusive evidence, that he is the Son of God risen from the dead. Here's another implication. In Christ, we too are delivered from the grave. Our grave clothes will ultimately be left behind, even as Lloyd read this morning, for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. That means for believers in Jesus Christ this morning, Death is simply a comma. It is simply a door that opens. I think most of us, I don't think most believers fear death. I think what we fear is dying. Because death is simply a doorway into everything that Jesus Christ has promised. The new heaven, and the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. And when that happens, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But thank God He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know in Christ, you can have life beyond the grave? This is what He told Mary. He said, Jesus or Martha, He said, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die Do you believe this? And it's a question that we should pose to ourselves this morning. When we lived in Kenya from the years 2000 to 2005, we had Indian friends, acquaintances, uh, one of the doctors that we went to uh, often. And even in in Zambia, they would have these little shrines uh, built to a man named Sai Baba. At the time, he was alive. He's an Indian guru who mixed mysticism with Hinduism, and Muslim and Christian faiths. He was worshiped by many. Even in his 80s, he looked like he was about 50 years old. Sai Baba is said to have been a reincarnation of Shirdi Sai Baba, who was a reincarnation of Shiva and Shakti, tying him directly to the Hindu trinity. At age 14, he made that pronouncement, and from that time all the way into his 80s, was worshipped as part of the Hindu trinity. Sai Baba's teachings are hybrid, mingling all different faiths and religions. On April 27th, 2011, it was reported, quote, on Easter Sunday, the Indian guru Sathya Sai Baba died. He was ranked this year by Watkins Review as one of the most spiritually influential people in the world. He established a global network of followers and schools among tales of his ability to cure the sick and perform various miracles. He had a hybrid Eastern-Western appeal. You know what many of Sai Baba's followers said would happen to him? They transferred the Christian story of Jesus over onto Sai Baba, and they expected that he would be resurrected three days after he died. Matter of fact, according to a BBC international report, it says that he, would, that he would rise again, this is his followers, saying in the next three or four days after his death. That would mean that he should have risen from the dead on April twenty seventh, 2011. On that day when he should have been raised from the dead, the Times of India published another version that says this, quote, Sai Baba would resurrect himself after 41 days. See how convenient this becomes? They said that his resurrection was disturbed by a devotee who went on a hunger strike because Sai Baba appeared to her in a dream and said that he did not want his body buried, but then that hindered his actual resurrection. Another person wrote, quote, His death was announced on the day that is widely believed imaginatively that Jesus was resurrected, Easter Sunday, suspecting those in power around him to have kept him on life support so they could disconnect him on just that day. He continues to write, It seems to make a bigger splash than the crashing fact that he has died, and prematurely, according to himself, who predicted he would live until he was at least 96 years old, However, he has died at age 85, and no resurrection is reported. And today, Sai Baba is still dead. But why why should that illustration matter? It matters because the world over, even in cultures you have never visited, place a high value on somebody who could say they're going to resurrect from the dead and then does, or doesn't in his case. There's only one man in all of history who predicted where he would die, how he would die, and that he would rise from the dead three, not four, or 41, three days later to the day. And he provided objective, verifiable, testable proof of that, tr- of that event. So we have been given factual, historical Evidence. That is why philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said this The central question of humanity is whether or not Jesus rose again on Easter morning. How we understand that question determines how we will answer every other question. At the end of John chapter 20, this will be the last text I read, John has has really heaped up seven different signs, miracles, all leading to a final conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. This is how he ends. He gives you the purpose of his letter in John chapter 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book in the Gospel of John. But these are written, these seven that John covered, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you believe in Jesus Christ this morning? If you do, your sins have been forgiven. You have life in him now. You will have eternal life with him after you die. But everybody's going to leave these doors this morning believing something. And what the Lord Jesus Christ did, just like he did to those who were grumbling at him, saying to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, he said, which is easier to say? And then he offers this verifiable proof. And you have now seen and read the evidence Jesus Christ is the Lord, the risen Lord of glory. If you do not believe, or you're caught in unbelieving skepticism, not like Thomas, but like an unbeliever who simply says, I I refuse to believe this, it sounds so fanciful, it sounds like a myth. Would you please, if there is any interest or any prompting in your heart, would you come talk to me, and if I'm talking with someone else, I'll, I'll, I'll find someone that you can talk to and can show you the truth that Jesus Christ loves you, he laid down his life for you, and he, and, he, and, he, and he sealed that by rising again the third day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving the world so much that you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you, it is a gift of your grace to be received by faith. Lord, thank you that we do not have to work for it or be righteous for it or be churchy. Thank you that it is simply a gift of your grace to be received. Lord, our prayer is that no one would leave here this morning without the assurance, first, that you love them and that you provided a way for the forgiveness of their sin in your Son. And that they would make the clear confession that Thomas made that Jesus is their Lord and their God. Lord, salvation truly can only be found with you. Open blind eyes, break up hard hearts, and grant faith in the object of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.